Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have David Dubovsky and Lyle Sussman with me. They are both the co-authors of Your Total Wealth, The Heart and Soul of Financial Literacy. It was something that we're going to talk a lot about. David previously taught finance at Texas A&M, Virginia Commonwealth, and the University of Louisville. Lyle is a professor emeritus at the College of Business at the University of Louisville and is a frequent speaker in the banking industry. So let's start with the world of academia. I'm I'm curious, and maybe David, we can start with you. What got you into this space? And I know from some personal experience through my family members, the, the academic world is not for the faint of heart, and it's really changed quite dramatically over the last ten or twenty years. What What has your journey been like, David? And then Lyle, I want to hear from you as well. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, well, originally I was a chemical engineer, and I got my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from City College of New York. And I worked for five years as a chemical engineer. I got my MBA at night at the University of Houston. And while I was working there, I became very interested in finance and realized I didn't really want to be a chemical engineer. I was working in production. It's a very messy job. So one day I uh, I had to write a master's thesis to get my MBA. And I wandered into my uh, teacher's office to say, this is what I wanted to write about. And I started talking to him about being a finance professor. And I left his office that day. I went home. I said to my wife, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to become a finance professor. And I was interested in financial markets. I wanted to know what made the stock market tick, interest rates tick, exchange rates tick. So I went home that night, said I wanted to become a finance uh, PhD and teach finance. And, and you know, the rest is history. I went to the University of Washington, got my PhD. Like you say, taught at Texas A&M for 16 years, went on to VCU and UofL. And academics has changed a lot. I mean, the amount of, in particular, to publish articles, which is the lifeblood of any serious academic. You have to write articles and journals that are just incredibly demanding for the amount of work and effort and the hoops you have to jump through and, and the mathematical rigor, and the statistical rigor to get an article published uh, is uh, really can be overwhelming. But that said, I did publish 40 articles as an academic and uh, you know had, had some notoriety, some uh, serious academic uh, research. I'm always proud of saying that two Nobel Prize winners in economics, Myron Scholes and Merton Miller, cited my research uh, when I was an academic. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of as a 
as a serious academic who's had some impact on the field? Uh, my take on that same question, Brian, and it really is an interesting question because uh, the world of the academy, the world of academics is very different than the private sector and even the public sector. My journey in some ways is similar to David's. What we both have in common is we we did well in school and we like studying and, and we like writing. I think the difference between uh, David's journey and my journey is my career has always been hybrid. I've always been a full-time professor, University of Michigan, University of Pittsburgh, and 40 years University of Louisville. But but during that career, I I was a consultant, I was a speaker, and if I had not done those, I'm not sure I would have stayed in the academy because I was uh, my inkling and my uh, orientation has always been applied. And if you think about the book, uh, the, the book is an application of uh, a personal finance, a personal well-being. So uh, I, I was fortunate. I was I was able to find university positions that allowed me to apply my interests and talent. And, and I think that's also the case for David. And so what was the initial impetus behind writing the book? And how did you all connect originally and, and decide to collaborate here? Well, let me, let me take the first cut at that. Uh, David and I were colleagues at the University of Louisville. I was chairman of the management department, and he was full-time finance professor and also had administrative positions. And uh, as I was uh, approaching my uh, retirement, I approached David and said, David, I have this idea. And David, why don't you take it from there? Well, Lyle and I did some research. We did a survey of about 2,000 financial planners, and uh, we published four articles out of this survey. And it was on the non-financial life coaching activities of financial planners. You know, if you if you go to the Department of Labor, they have a description of what it is to be a financial planner. And it says things about investment planning and financial aspects, stocks, bonds, and asset allocation. It doesn't say anything about the non-financial activities, but we found that about based on our survey, about 25% of the time of an average financial planner, 25% of their time is spent on non-financial issues. It's so difficult to open up about finance. And when people open up about their finances and their money issues, they will open up about everything. They will open up about their marriage problems, their problems with children, drug problems, divorce, suicide, spiritual issues. And, uh, you know, th this is one of the key findings that financial planning is not just finance. There's a lot of personal interaction that you have to learn as a financial planner and you have to learn skills like empathy. You have to learn listening skills and you are going to serve as a financial planner. There's a little bit of being a psychologist, a little bit of being a minister, social worker, physician and more. And it was it was this research that really led to the book that was we were trying to mesh the finance along with the non-finance. And, and getting back to your question, Brian, David is a numbers guy and I was management, leadership, communication. And when I was looking for someone to write the finance section of the book, finance, <laughs> asset allocation, margin, uh, risk analysis, uh, derivatives. The logical person was, was David Dubosky, not just because he was one floor below me, but uh, his national acclaim. Uh, and again, talking about our, our research, uh, we are both proud and in many respects humbled 
by the response it has received. Uh, it, the, the Journal of Financial Planning articles have been cited more than 50 times, and we've had a number of reviewers saying that our research has had an effect on the profession. I want to go back to one of the comments that you made earlier in terms of the, the genesis of the book about how today financial advisors are really looked at almost as financial therapists. And, and there is a sense that many of these people are very good at sales, but maybe not necessarily great once they get the client on the books. Um, is part of the, the reasoning behind the, the book itself to kind of help financial advisors understand that they need a more holistic approach to financial literacy today? That's a great question. Uh, and it deals with the target audience of the book. Yes, we see the book as useful for advisors. But beyond that, the, the market for the book is anyone who is trying to make sense of their personal financial life and their personal life. And, and back to your earlier, earlier comment, Brian, there, there is a school of thought in the financial service industry that financial advising should be purely driven by algorithms and Monte Carlo simulations and, and all the high tech and, and high data analysis. But there is also a growing school, and I think that's what your total wealth is, by, is responding to, a growing school that is saying, how can you talk about money without talking about life? And that is what the book is doing. So, so yes, the book is the book goes beyond talking to advisors. We're talking to advisors and, and using helping them talk to their clients. Yeah, I think we originally when we started writing the book, we were thinking that it was going to be more for the clients of financial planners, accountants, bankers, because. Yeah, because these, these people, I mean, first of all, there's the financial aspect of these jobs, and it behooves every one of these people, accountants, tax planners, financial planners, to invest in their clients' degree of financial literacy. I mean, they, they ought to help them understand the language of finance. So there was that aspect. But then at the other hand was our research, which said that regardless of the amount of money these people have with their financial planners, people are unhappy. People have problems. Money doesn't solve problems. The only problem it solves is that you have money, <laughs> but all the other problems stay there. So, you know, we were writing with the idea that this was going to be a book really for the clients of financial planners, but it's it's gone beyond that. It's really for just about anybody because everybody ought to have a little bit of financial literacy. And, you know, the little life lessons that we provide are interesting, they're humorous, they're engaging. They're thought-provoking, and if anyone sits down and just opens up the book and, and reads one of those life lessons, I mean, if they can think about it and say, this is interesting, I never thought of this idea before, but it can be very motivating uh, in, in changing people's lives. Take a minute, David. Question about what financial advisors do and how they look at their clients. There's really an interesting dynamic occurring in the industry right now. On the one hand, there are robo-advisors. There are algorithms that will allow someone to answer a couple of yes-no questions and come up with a financial plan that will take them into the future. A, a robo-advisor. And, and the question any human advisor has to ask is, how am I different than a robo-advisor? What kind of value what added I, do I have? Yeah. What value am I going to provide 
that a non-human algorithm is not going to provide. And, and then we have the book. So why is it in America that we're so lacking in financial literacy on a basic level? It's not taught in high school. It's not taught in middle school. And it, it seems like there's this huge barrier to entry or moat that people have to kind of slog through the majority of their lives until they hit, you know, college or graduate school or have the ability to attend one of your classes in which they can understand the basics of finance. Why is that, do you think, and how could we potentially fix it? Well, there are some states that require classes or courses in financial literacy in high school, but very few. I I think it might be only 10 or 15 states. Virginia is actually one of them. They vary. Sometimes it just says that you have to teach a little bit of financial literacy, some finance in, in a course somewhere. So buried away in an economics course that a student is taking, they'll have two or three classes on finance. Other states do require full classes. I know myself growing up, I mean, I knew nothing about finance. You know, my father never invested in the stock market. He was a child of the depression. He didn't trust the stock market. I always said, you know, this was kind of an act of rebellion, the fact that I got interested in the stock market again. But you know, I didn't learn finance until I got out there and started working as an engineer. And that started my whole financial education. Like you say, it's not, you said until college, college is optimistic. If you're a liberal arts major, you're not learning very much finance in, in college. I can't explain why it's certainly extremely important in this day and age to have some finance and business acumen, put it on a legislative agenda that you know government should come in and start mandating these things. Brian, it's really a powerful question because financial literacy can be the difference between having a successful life and a non-successful life. And why is it that financial literacy is such a problem in this country? Uh, aside from David's answer, another answer is just look at how people are learning about finance. Most people are learning about finance because they're making mistakes. They're not, they, they aren't getting taught at home. In my case, my mother never even had a checkbook. David and I have used an analogy about sex education and financial education. There are some things people have trouble talking about, either because they don't know it or they don't have the vocabulary or the background to make it interesting and understandable. So, Let's pivot back to the book itself. The reception has been positive, but but what are some of the highest, uh, in your opinion, impact feedback that you've gotten from folks, both in the financial advisory world, but also on, on the client space about how the book has improved that experience for them? Uh, let, me, let me take the first credit there. We had a Kipling review that came out last April. And what's interesting is the review was prompted by a question posed by an MD, a doctor, and I'm just going to I'm going to paraphrase the question because I don't have the column in front of me. But the question basically said is, I'm, I'm an MD, I'm starting to make money, I'm a bright guy, but I don't know what my accountant and what my advisor is telling me. Can you recommend something that I ought to read? And the advisor, it's a powerful question. That there were very very bright people, MDs, JDs, DDSs formal education that don't know a great deal about finance. And they're dealing with someone, an advisor, who's using jargon. And for me, one of the highlights was a Kiplinger column that said, read your total wealth. (laughs) It'll give you a background in finance without you having to, it'll give you, it'll be finance 101, and it'll give you some life lessons. That to me was a, a very powerful phrase. 
Yeah, we've had uh, the good review at Kiplinger was glowing. You know, for for about two weeks, we were the number two best-selling book in finance at uh, at Amazon based on that Kiplinger review. So that was very nice for us. We had another uh, mention in Forbes where somebody wrote a column on what are the finance books that financial officers, CFOs are reading. And he listed our book in there. And uh, getting back to doctors, the White Coat Investor is a financial blog of uh, providing financial advice to doctors and physicians. And he had a list of books that he recommended that doctors read to learn about finance. And he mentioned our book as well. The other praise I would would, uh, like to share with you, Brian, is uh, one of our reviewers coined a phrase that David and I have now been using in some of our LinkedIn posts and some of our conversations. And the phrase was combining financial literacy with life literacy. David and I didn't coin the phrase life literacy. That was a phrase that one of our reviewers came up with. So what, what's, happening, what's happening now is that the, the book is starting to create a discussion about the, the merging of finance Financial financial literacy and life literacy. The um, you know, if you go to Amazon, you could read. I mean, we only have like a handful of comments there, but one of the comments that somebody wrote was that this book totally, our book changed uh, his life. Here it has totally changed my life, rearranged my priorities, and has led to a happier, more financially secure me with inner peace on all financial fronts. Yeah, that was a, a very, very nice uh, comment. I, I think that the uh, the life lessons, like I, I say, you know, they, they can be very illuminating to people to make them realize about different aspects of life that they otherwise would not have ever thought about. You've got a great quote on the introduction from Dale Carnegie. Success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. <laughs> right, that's a very first quote in the book. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great quote. How do you parse out or help explain to to people on the client side the difference between success and wealth, right? To your comment earlier, we work with a lot of ultra high net worth individuals and families, and we always say that money is an accelerant. It's not going to solve your problems, but it will exacerbate your existing issues. What is the end game here in, in terms of how you think about using financial literacy as a tool to achieve success? What does that success look like in your mind? That's a wonderful question. And uh, as I said earlier, I've done a lot of speaking. I've done a lot of workshops, a lot of training programs. And one of the questions I ask is, uh, tell me what you think the the Midas touch. I ask people, tell me what the Midas touch means to you. And most people think the Midas touch is a wonderful story about personal gain. And people would love to have the Midas touch. And I say, in fact, the Midas touch is a horror story. It is a story that could have been written by Stephen King. Having wealth will not solve problems. As David said, the only problem it solves is, is, the, is filling the absence of not having it. And, I, and what's interesting, Brian, is that many people come to that conclusion later in life when they, when they understand that family relationships and their health and they start recognizing that there might be an end to their life, they realize that money is helps them solve problems, but it will not make them happy. 
When you use the word wealth, and our book is titled Your Total Wealth, I mean, the, the thrust behind that title is that wealth is just not money. Wealth is anything of value. You know, it's the sum total of all of the things you of value that you possess. And money is the financial measure of your wealth. But there's all these non-financial measures of wealth as well. You know, the love that you have for people, the friendships you have. And, uh, and and all of these other non-financial issues, on, on I always remember page 161 of our book, we have a list of all of these other attributes about uh, how you can be wealthy without having a penny in, in the bank. And there's a list here of health, wisdom, happiness, serenity, family, friends, and all of these aspects, uh, you, you have to balance them. You know, your whole life should not be about attaining and gathering financial wealth. That's certainly important, but at the same time, you shouldn't forego all these other aspects of wealth, and uh, you should work just as hard trying to help develop and foster all these other aspects of wealth that uh, make you spiritually happy and bring you inner fulfillment. And so I've talked to other professionals about just that, and I have an internal thesis that money has energy. Right, it can be used for good. It can be used for bad. It has some type of relationship with how it was generated and how it's used. How do you, both of you, think about <clears throat> this concept that the money has some kind of inherent energy, and it can have different characteristics depending on how you think about it, how you talk about it, and how you leverage it? Right, that's a wonderful thesis. That money has energy, <laughs> and as a matter of fact, there's a section in a book where David defines a concept of compound interest. And then I have written a section called uh, Habits are the Compound Interest of Change, which is really a a paraphrase of of, of Clary's quote. Yes, once we make decisions about how we're going to use money, that can have a dynamic onto itself that there is momentum built on that. And there's an energy and it can be compounded. It needs to compound it upward or compound it lower which means we can be in an upward trajectory, which would be a combination of, of personal gain, personal fulfillment and money, or lower. So yeah, we can go through life using money and, and, and realizing compound interest can make our life better, or compound interest can be going the opposite direction, that the bad habits feed on themselves or the good habits feed on themselves, and both are compounded. Yeah, money does have energy. There's no question. Just look at the national psyche when the stock market's doing well. I mean, just people are happier. There's generally uh, an exuberance, good feeling in in, in the country, and uh, there's more optimism. But uh, when the stock market goes down, it uh, gets equally bad headlines, and it creates a malaise. So there's no question that money does have an energy about it. And back to the earlier question about the, the problem of financial literacy in this country. I, I, I think if the average person understood the conversation that we've had for the last five or six minutes about compound interest and the energy of money and upward trajectory or downward trajectory, they would really understand what financial literacy means, that, that the decisions we make about how we earn money, we spend money, we invest money, those decisions have have a compounding effect that will lead to our our satisfaction in life. So when you talk to people 
about the book and how to leverage it. What are some of the specific sections that you're most proud of or that you like to highlight? And let's maybe go from the client perspective of, and I'm really interested in how can somebody who's looking to engage with a financial advisor, how should they use this book and what's the right way for them to use it as a preparatory homework item before walking to the office and having that initial conversation? A financial advisor that wants to use this book for his or her personal gain and as a marketing strategy for business should spend a great deal of time reading that the first chapter of the book because the first chapter of the book lays out the logic, lays out the rationale. And, and after that, I think advisors will get more information out of the right-hand pages than the left-hand pages. Most advisors will know the terms, the terminology, the definitions of, of finance, they may not have the understanding of the right-hand pages. That's, so that my, my recommendation is that financial advisors focus on the right-hand pages. David? Well, I have mixed emotions about agreeing with that. Uh, I, I think even, even financial advisors could probably learn something from the left-hand side. The left-hand side, of a, when you open up the book, the left-hand side is a financial term with a description, and it's written in very succinctly, less than 400 words, it describes what derivatives are, what a balance sheet is, what a fiduciary is. And then on the right-hand side of that page is what we call the yang, and it's the life lesson that draws on the left-hand side. So, for instance, uh, derivatives, you know, uh, we, we uh, define, yeah, I've wrote two textbooks on derivatives, and each one was over 600 pages. And here I had 400 words. So Lyle said, write, write about derivatives in 400 words. Well, <laughs> 600 pages to 400 words. And, but, uh, you know, so I wrote it. And the, the way we worked was I would write the finance part, give it to Lyle, and Lyle would then write the life lesson. So in my discussion about derivatives, I, I mentioned that derivatives are very complex. They're hard to understand. You're working at a information disadvantage relative to the other side. Uh, the other side knows how derivatives are valued. They have more information than you do. They can work, operate quicker than you can. And academic evidence has found that, I'm thinking in particular about options, that people who trade options lose money. On average, they lose money. And so I fed that to Lyle, and he follows up with a quote by uh, Loretta Lynn about common sense, and he writes about common sense. And common sense is learn from your mistakes. So you know, if, you, if you monitor how you're trading options, sit down every year and see how you're doing trading options. And if you're losing money, realize you're just like most people, you are going to lose money trading options. So, you know, you should live your life with common sense. And, you know, you get that, it's that type of yin-yang building off of the financial terms. And the question you pose, the best way to use the book, the book can be read in sections. The book can be applied in sections. David and I believe that one of the ways that advisors and their clients can both benefit is they can pick up sections of the book, and then the book can serve as a prompt for advisors to communicate more effectively with their clients, and vice versa. A, a client can pick up any section of the book and look at, the, at a term and say, hmm, tell me how this particular concept helps my future financial plan. And then that helps both the advisor and the client. I wouldn't recommend anyone sits down, sit down and just read the whole book at one sitting. I really think it's more effective to 
pick it up, look at the financial terms, say, oh, this is something I'd like to learn more about. 400 words, you learn about the particular topic. And then take the time to read the life lesson to hopefully enrich your life where you scratch your head a little and you say, well, that's interesting. I just never thought about that. And and, and it makes sense. But you know, there's, there's a wealth of knowledge, both financial and um, just in terms of spiritual life living and life literacy in, in the book uh, on those pages. But I personally would recommend, you know, you just either, either you make it a, a habit where every day or every other day you read a left side, right side, or you just pick it up and you read the terms about the terms that you're interested in about learning. And this, you've mentioned this multiple times, you both have this yin and yang component to the book, this, the setup that you've used. Why did you choose that dichotomous type organization structure for a book about financial literacy? Well, it's interesting that you use the word because in fact, yin yang is not dichotomy. The yin yang concept is complementary, that it's not an either or proposition. And if you look at the symbol, you look at the cover of our book, it's a holistic circle that the money and the life are merged together. The concept dichotomy is either or. The concept of yin-yang is complementary, that one only has a meaning relative to the other. One only has a meaning and a value relative to the other. And and like I said earlier, I mean, what really was the impetus uh, behind the book was just some conversations we had in the hallway at the University of Louisville about how difficult it was to talk about money, about problems that people had and and our in our research that people who have money still have problems uh, money just doesn't solve people's problems in some cases money creates more problems than they had when when they began it can create money can obviously create family conflict so you know that that was the uh, the basis behind writing a book with the yin yang to try and fuse the financial understanding that people have that people need along with the life lessons that people need equally as well. So let's end here. I want to hear from both of you. Maybe we'll start with Lyle. This concept of life literacy, which I think is wonderful. What are what are the big life lessons that you would advocate for? Now that you've done this research, you've had this robust career, you've written this book, you've received feedback. Lyle, let's start with you. What's one of the biggest takeaways that you think people should have reading this book and, and as they go on their own financial literacy journey? Wow, Brian, thank you for that. And I'm going to answer this. This, this is kind of catharsis. So I'm going to answer it personally, and then I'm going to answer it in terms of the co-author of the book. On, on, on a personal level, I think one of the real life lessons is that the most important things in life are not things. The most important things in life are relationships and health and personal fulfillment. How you derive at that is a personal journey. Yeah, you may need money for that, but you don't necessarily need a lot of money for that. So the to me, one of the major life lessons is there are many ways for people to seek their personal happiness and fulfillment. Money is not the only solution. And in fact, it creates others. And the the other is, even though it sounds like a cliche, there are reasons why love songs and poetry have the common themes about about personal commitment and loyalty, because there's a truth to it. There's an underlying transcendent truth about what makes people happy. 
And, and that has been the case for generations, and it will be. <laughs> As a matter of fact, in one of the sections of the book, if you read a random sample of, of obituaries published in newspapers, you see the phrase, family members were at the bedside. You don't hear, you don't read the phrase, the accountant and the lawyer were at the bedside. It's family, it's relationships, it's health. And it's coming to an understanding of that earlier rather than later. I, I chuckled because I thought that the only time you hear about the lawyer and accountant at the bedside is in some jokes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, think of it. I mean, would you rather have $5 million and be miserable, unhappy, no friends, no family? Uh, or would you have rather have you know, $100,000 in the bank and have all the the other wonderful aspects of family, love, and compassion that that really, I mean, you're, you're only living once. And, you know, these other aspects of life are just so much more important. But, uh, you know, speaking financially, I mean, of what, you know, what I've learned throughout my life, you know, is that save a lot, buy and hold, diversify. Uh, the, the, these are the secrets to accumulating wealth. Don't try to save thinking that, you know, I want to retire when I'm age 40. Uh, you know, take your time and over 40 or 50 years of consistent saving, you know, properly done. By the time you retire, you're going to be comfortable and be able to live in your in your retired years. Social security is not going to make it. You can't just retire just on social security. You have to have more money in order to live happily in, in your later lives. Brian, there's one other answer to your question. Two years ago, a nurse wrote a book called The Five Regrets of Life. And it's an interesting, interesting thesis. What she did is she asked people who had terminal illnesses, you know you're dying, do you have any regrets? And there really are five, there are really five themes that those people came up with. And 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 one of those themes is is a paraphrase of what Dave and I are talking about that they weren't more honest about what they wanted and what they needed to do. And in fact, financial literacy in some respects is very, very simple. You don't need an MBA or a PhD or a degree in mathematics to understand the importance of saving, of, of investing, of, of being frugal and thinking long-term. You don't have to be brilliant to think about that. What you do have to do is understand that you want to live your life so you don't regret making those mistakes. Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on. I want to thank both of you for joining me today. And as we end here, what's the best way for people to connect with you, learn more about the book, Your Total Wealth? Is it on Amazon? Um, what is the best way for folks to engage with you all and then access the book itself? Let me take the first cut and David, you can do that. Uh, go to www.yourtotalwealth.com. David and I have a webpage. We also have a blog, and that blog gets updated on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, we just inserted something about a pre-retirement planning series of questions. So www.yourtotalwealth.com. David? 
Yeah, and uh, the book is for sale on Amazon. It's amazingly enough. And if people want bulk orders, I mean, you can go to our webpage and, and there's a, a page there where you can contact us. You can send us a message if you're interested in ordering in bulk. Or if you have anything else to say, uh, you can write any comments you want. Just go to yourtotalwealth.com and it's all there. But otherwise, uh, go visit Amazon. Well, I want to encourage people to check out the website, check out the blog. I have been following it and it's really good content. And obviously the book itself, a huge resource. And I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join me today. And I wish you the best of luck with the book and all of your other endeavors moving forward. Thank you, Brian. Brian. You've been a great host. You've been a great host. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.